invite you to join me in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. We've finished up our series in Philippians, and it took us about a year to go through four chapters. Please don't freak out when you look at Exodus and see we have 40 chapters. Um, it's Old Testament narrative. It'll go a whole lot faster than a New Testament epistle. The book of Exodus is all about God. The people of Israel knew God. He was known by his people, but they didn't know him well. And so uh, the book of Exodus shows that there is a God. He's a God who saves. He's a God who delivers. He's a God who loves his people. He's a God who gives information to his people so that they will know how to live. My friend, this is good news. It is good news that we have a God who loves us and wants to be known by us. Just like the Israelites in Egypt we too are in bonds. We are enslaved apart from the freedom that Christ gives us. It's not an enslavement to a political entity as they were enslaved. Our bondage is to sin. And only when we trust the Deliverer by obeying Him in faith can we be set free from our enslavement. The word exodus is very similar to the word exit. And that makes sense, because in the book of Exodus, we're going to see Israel exit Egypt. And so sure enough, there's an action-adventure storyline that has all the best elements of an epic narrative. There is uh, action, there's, uh, there's the downtrodden pro protagonist that's being abused by a maniacal, power-hungry, insecure king. You have the supernatural, sensational signs that, if it were a different storyline, we might call magic, but we know this is God working through Aaron and Moses to do these wonderful, powerful signs. The antagonist also has some powerful signs. We'll see that coming up as the Pharaoh's magicians do their dark acts. But every time the Pharaoh's magicians try to replicate what Aaron and Moses do, it comes back against them somehow in one way or another. Uh, I was reading through the, the plagues recently, and what I find hilarious is God pronounces the, the plagues of like the frogs, and, and the frogs are everywhere in the land of Egypt, even in their cupboards and their bowls. And what do the magicians do? Well, they produce more frogs. How does that help? <laughs> it actually made it worse for them, didn't it? But every time Pharaoh's magicians are able to do something, it actually makes it worse for them. So we see the supernatural in the book of Exodus. We'll see apocalyptic scenes of destruction along awesome scenes of deliverance. But this glorious exit of God's people is not the end, nor is it even the main point of the book of Exodus. 
Yes, freeing of the Hebrew slaves from the oppression of Egypt is important. It's a very significant part of the book. But the greater plot line is actually found in the second half of the book as God prepares his people so that he can dwell with them. Whereas at the beginning of the book, God is known but not well. By the end, he is able to dwell among them. So God reveals himself more and more throughout the book of Exodus. He's going to reveal his character. He's going to demonstrate his faithfulness by continuing to fulfill his promise made to Abraham centuries earlier. He reveals his holiness, that he is righteous and good in everything that he does, and that's what he wants from his people as well. He demonstrates his character by not destroying Israel because uh, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, you know that for a moment they listen to God and then they rebel. And then a moment they listen to God again and then they rebel. Listen, rebel. Listen, rebel. And it seems like they're rebelling more than anything. And God really could have and should have and actually told Moses that he wanted to destroy all of them and just start over. But God reveals his character by not destroying them and starting over. So yes, Exodus is about the exit from Egypt, but it's more than that. Exodus is the revelation of God. So the title of our sermon series is Jehovah Unveiled, that proper name of God being mysterious and clouded, becoming clearer, Jehovah Unveiled. Chapters 1 through 18 of Exodus is God's deliverance of Israel. We'll see in the first four chapters, God blesses Israel. In chapters 5 through 15, we're going to see God confronting Pharaoh. There are five times that Scripture records that Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then five additional times where Scripture records that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and we're going to look at the significance of those events. In chapters 16 through 18, we see God providing for his people while they're in the wilderness, and in this first half, about half of the book, the first section of the book, we're going to see a very clear picture of the gospel through the Passover. So we'll look forward to that as well. The second section of the book is chapters 19 through 40, where God makes his covenant with Israel. And he does so by giving them the law. And then in chapters 25 through 31, he designs his dwelling, that, that tabernacle, that movable tent, so that they can have a place to worship God. Uh, there has to be uh, a separation between God and his people because the people are sinful and God is holy, and the tabernacle demonstrates how all that is going to work together. In fact, the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus himself. We'll talk about more on those lines later. Of course, as God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, what happens? They rebel, actually, while he's receiving them, and they fashion a golden calf, and so we've got a couple chapters, a few chapters of uh, God dealing with them and, their, and the broken covenant. And then finally, the book ends with God dwelling among his people. So that's where we're going. It's going to take a little while to get there, but I am pretty sure it's going to take us less than 10 years, so I'll just keep that as the promise, less than 10. Uh, but let's look at today's passage, Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. We thank you for the promise that you made to Abram that in him all the world would be blessed. And we understand that, that part of that fulfillment is actually found in Jesus Christ, the, descendants, the descendant of Abraham that provided salvation to us. Father, I pray that as we look this morning at this overview of Exodus and as we anticipate what you will do uh, through your word in our lives in the coming weeks and months, Lord, we pray that you would indeed bless us, give us understanding. Father, guide my words, open our hearts to your truth this morning. In his precious name I pray, amen. First, we're going to see some of God's historical blessings, and today is just going to be a different message. Um, I very rarely will take a passage of Scripture and then go refer to tons of other passages, but that's exactly what we have to do today because the very first word in the Hebrew Bible of Exodus chapter 1 is the word and. Now, I know it doesn't show up in our English Bibles, but it's there in the Hebrew, that conjunction and. Now, normally we wouldn't start a sentence with and. I mean, some of my children do, but they're little and we excuse that. And mom, can we do, whatever. That's not what's happening here. It's not a throwaway word, even though our English translations kind of threw it away. The word and is there because Exodus is directly connected to Genesis. In fact, if you don't know anything about Genesis, these few verses that I read at the beginning of Exodus don't make any sense. Exodus is supposed to be connected to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, um, there is a list of names, a genealogy at the beginning of each section. The first section of Genesis is all about creation and the subsequent fall of man into sin. There are no humans in verse 1 yet, but there is a genealogy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the father of all things. He is the creator of all things. And so section 1 starts out with the only genealogy that we could have, God. God himself. Everything was perfect, then everything became corrupted by sin. So in the first section of Genesis, those first few chapters, we get our first hint of the gospel. Now there, there are multiple hints throughout, but, the, but one of the clearest hints is actually in chapter 3, verse 15, where God made a promise that someday, someday after this, this sin had happened, this fall had happened, and, and God is is confronting Adam, Eve, and the serpent about what they've done, that someday a descendant of Eve would what? Would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel, 
but he would crush the head of the serpent. That's, that's foretelling Jesus. Now, it was very foggy in chapter 3 of Genesis. It was not completely clear what God meant by it. But being on this side of the cross, we look back and say, yes, that's the gospel story. That yes, Satan would appear to have a victory over Jesus because Jesus did indeed die. But on the third day, he rose again, and that was the crushing blow that crushed the serpent's head. The second section of the book of Genesis uh, begins in Genesis chapter 5 and is all about increasing sin on earth. And in chapter 5, we have a genealogy. And if you're reading through those scriptures throughout a year, uh, these are some of those chapters that are really easy to skip, aren't they? You can confess, it's okay. But these chapters of genealogy are important. It's not just knowing that Adam lived so many years and when he was this age, he had this son. It's about showing a continuity of scripture that these are not uh, just made up stories, but these are historical people that really lived and really died. The second section of Genesis has its most poignant picture of the gospel in the ark itself as mankind has gotten so evil that God says, I'm done, I'm going to destroy them all. But he finds one man who is found faithful in God's sight, it's Noah. And so Noah and his family build an ark over the course of decades, many decades, so that they, there can be this grand ship. And if you want to know what one might look like, you can go to Kentucky and see a replica today. It may not be quite the right shape, but it's the right size. And you can see that, indeed, God made preparations for animals and people to be saved. And yet only eight people took that offer of salvation. It's a, the ark is actually a picture of Jesus Christ. Only those who... Listen to the warning of God and do what God says. Trust in him in order to do what he says. Believe him. Only those who believed got on the boat. Well, how many people were in his day? Well, a lot more than eight. Because that was just Noah, his three sons, Noah's wife, and his daughters-in-law. Eight people, that's it. The third section of the book of Genesis also starts with the genealogy. This is Genesis 11. Whereas Genesis 5 took us from Adam to Noah, Genesis 11 takes us from Noah all the way to Abraham. And this final section of Genesis, which goes from Genesis 11 all the way to the end, which is a very long book, only advances three generations. You have Abraham, whose next generation is Isaac, and the next generation is Jacob with his sons forming the 12 tribes of Israel. In this rather large final section of Genesis, the picture of the gospel gets even clearer. Do you remember Abraham? He had been promised a son. And years kept going by. And Abraham kept getting older. And Sarah kept getting older. And they still had no child. And God promised him, you're going to have so many descendants, they're going to be innumerable, just like the stars of the sky are innumerable and the sands on the seashore are innumerable. You're going to have so many descendants, you're not going to be able to count them. And Abraham's like, okay, that's great, but I don't even have one. And if I don't have one, I certainly can't have millions. Right? We didn't say it in those words, but that's what's happening. But finally, when both Abraham and Sarah were old, God kept his promise with the birth of Isaac. And then what happens several years later, probably around 12 to 15 years later, when 
Isaac is grown but not fully an adult necessarily. God says, Abraham, go take your son and sacrifice him. Now, if you know anything about the character of God, it is always wrong to murder someone, okay? God never, ever, ever condoned human sacrifice. Never. And Abraham knew that. But Abraham also was going to trust God and obey. And so he took his son, his only son Isaac, and loaded him down with some firewood so that they could go a few days' journey away to a, a, to a place that most of us actually believe is where Calvary was centuries later. But took him to uh, uh, the hill country around where Jerusalem was. And he built an altar. He laid the wood on it. And even as Isaac was laying there on the altar as Abraham was about to slay his son, to slit his throat, the angel of the Lord said, Stop! I know now that you trust me, that you believe in me. Don't harm your son. Use this substitute over here. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. What an incredible picture of God the Father sacrificing God the Son as Abraham took all the steps, obeying God, trusting that even if God did require him to kill Isaac, that God was going to keep his promise of a great nation. He believed that God would actually bring Isaac back from the dead. Now, God didn't have to do that because he provided the substitute. But as, as Genesis progresses, the pictures of salvation become clearer. And there are, there are lots and lots of instances of foreshadowing of, of Jesus and the gospel all throughout the book of Genesis and, and, and many, many more we're going to see in the book of Exodus. As we begin the book of Exodus, we are not beginning a new major section, but really finishing off that last section of the book of Genesis. He gives us a simple list that summarizes the detailed list that was given in Genesis chapter 46. And, and with, Genesis, with Exodus 1, not beginning with a genealogy, but that genealogy coming at Exodus chapter 6, right before Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh face to face, we get a genealogy that takes us from Abraham all the way to, to Moses and Aaron. Uh, we see that that's actually the next major section as Genesis and Exodus are really a combined book. Now, it's, it's, it's actually quite helpful that we have them separated in our scriptures. I'm not suggesting that they're supposed to be together. But I'm saying that the storyline continues. And so in verses 1 through 5, we see, of, of Exodus chapter 1, we see God's covenant faithfulness. God made a promise to Abraham, and he's kept it. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make sure that your, uh, that, that your descendants become, uh, become great and innumerable, that they fill the earth, that, that a descendant of Abraham was going to be a blessing to the entire world. We know that to be Jesus. And so Exodus starts out with a, a summary of those who came in. And if you're reading through this, if you're a, a good uh, historical scholar of the book of Genesis, you start reading these names. Reuben, yep, he's the oldest. 
and then next is Simeon, and the next is Levi. But Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin. No, Benjamin's the youngest. Why is he here in the middle? These are not in, in order of uh, their birth. Uh, in fact, I'm not quite sure what their order is. I'm just going to tell you that. But it's a summary. And these 12 individuals, with Joseph already being there, are representative of the 70 and yes, it's actual 70 people that came from, from the promised land over to Egypt. So the only reason that we have Exodus, the only reason that we have Exodus is because God was faithful to Abraham. If you want to join me in Genesis 15, we're going to look at some of the promises God made to Abraham. And, and our big idea this morning is God keeps his promises. I suppose that's an idea idea we could have with just about every sermon, but it fits well with what's happening in this introductory paragraph of Exodus. In Genesis 15, we have the Abrahamic covenant. It's the promise that God made to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here Abraham stands childless has been childless for around 10 years since the first time God had spoken to him. And God, again, renews his promise, says, I'm going to make of you a great people. And scripture says that Abraham believed God. And because Abraham believed God, even without the evidence, there was still no child. Because Abraham believed God, God counted him righteous. Just a few verses later, if you're there, join me in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God has promised Abraham, you're going to have lots of descendants, but these descendants are going to become enslaved. But God was going to set them free, and they were going to plunder their captors. So in the grand narrative of history as captured in Scripture, the Egyptian enslavement was not a surprise to God. He foretold it. He foretold it long before uh, any of the promises to Abraham were fulfilled. He said, you're going to have many descendants and they're going to become slaves. This 
Egyptian enslavement of Israel was not a detour in God's timeline. It was exactly as God designed. That might hurt our sensibilities a little bit, right? How can enslavement ever be right? See, God has a bigger picture in mind. We're going to see as this whole process of getting Israel out of Egypt, we're going to see the most powerful picture of the gospel so far in Scripture when we get to the Passover. That's not going to be until... Uh, chapter 12, but in Exodus 12, 13, we read, the blood shall be a sign for you. They're instructed to, to kill a lamb, to roast it, to, to make a meal, but the blood was to be captured and then what? Spread on the doorway, the two side posts and above the door. It says, Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you, when I strike the land of Israel. So the Israelites obeyed, and they, in essence, painted that blood on their doorways. And so on the, the Passover night, the Egyptians lost all their firstborns. In fact, the scripture records that every firstborn son among the Egyptians died. There wasn't a house in the, among the Egyptians that didn't have someone dead by morning. And yet, none of the Israelites died. Back in Genesis, Abraham offering Isaac was truly a powerful picture. The father sacrificing the son. But no one actually died there. In the Passover that we're going to look at again a while later. In the Passover, thousands of people died. In fact, Scripture says, the firstborn among every household and the firstborn of your livestock. There was death all throughout the land. And finally, what does Pharaoh say? He says, go, leave. But at what cost? Every event that God used to force Pharaoh's hand was actually God keeping his promise to Abraham, wasn't it? He promised Abraham that, they would, that he would have a very large and fruitful descendant. His family would become a great nation. That they would be enslaved, but they would be set free. Every step of the way, God is keeping his promise. We see those hints in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already there. We pick it up in verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. Verse 6 mentions Joseph by name. Joseph was absolutely key to the survival of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is later on in the book of Genesis where we learn about Joseph, but Joseph was number 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob, also known as Israel. Jacob had uh, two wives and two concubines. That's, first of all, a bad idea right there. Uh, but he had children with four people. And his favorite of the four 
Well, she had two sons. They were Joseph and Benjamin, and they were his favorite sons. Joseph was by far his favorite. By the way, the only people who should ever have a favorite child are people who only have one child. Okay. Jacob should have known better. He should have known better than to have Joseph as a favorite son. In fact, Jacob's father, Isaac, had a favorite son, and it wasn't Jacob. Isaac's favorite son was Esau, and that didn't turn out so well for them, did it? But Jacob didn't learn. He had a favorite son. It was Joseph, and he didn't try to hide it at all. He was more generous to Joseph. He treated Joseph with, uh, with great favor. In fact, the last that, um, that Jacob sees Joseph uh, for many, many years, the last he sees, it, sees him is when the other 11 brothers are out tending the sheep, but his favorite is at home with them. And he sends Joseph out to find his brothers. Hey, bring them some food. He's just bringing them some supplies. Go find them, bring them some supplies. Why don't you wear your fancy coat that I bought you? And of course, his brothers were jealous. His 11 brothers end up selling him into slavery. And as bad as that is, what they actually wanted to do was worse. They wanted to kill him. At least some of them wanted to kill him. Reuben, the eldest, stepped in and, and convinced them not to do that that harm. He, he convinced the bloodthirsty brothers to spare his life. So Joseph becomes a slave, and he eventually finds out that there's something worse than being a slave. He became an imprisoned slave, having been falsely accused by a sexual predator who, in reality, he was the victim. But anyway, the truth wasn't on his side. He became a prisoner. But because the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph eventually ends up in Pharaoh's governing administration, becoming number two over all of Egypt, second in command, all because God had given him prophetic understanding of Pharaoh's dream. Remember Pharaoh's dream? He had a dream that there would be of 12 fat cows and 12 really scrawny, sickly cows. 12, I said 12, didn't I? It's seven, seven of each. Seven fat cows and seven sickly cows. And the seven fat cows represented seven years of good, bountiful harvest. And the seven sickly cows represented seven years of famine. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Because Joseph was able to interpret the dream for Pharaoh, Pharaoh named him number two over all of Egypt. And so Joseph was able to coordinate the stockpiling of grain for seven years. So that when the seven years of famine came, that they would have supply not only for Egypt, but for the entire region. And that's exactly the circumstances God used to move Jacob and his sons and their families to Egypt. There was no food in the land of Israel, the land that we would know of as Israel. There was no food where they were, but Egypt had food. So God moves the entire clan to, to Egypt. So why mention Joseph in Exodus 1.6? Why not just say, instead of Joseph died and all his brothers, why not just say this generation died? Because of course they did. It was 400 years. Well, perhaps it's because Joseph's life 
was a foreshadow of what would happen to the Israelites as a whole. Joseph started life privileged, very privileged. The 70 members of Jacob's family that was in Egypt at the end of Genesis were also privileged. Why? They had been spared from the famine. They had been protected and funded by Pharaoh's own house. They were given by Pharaoh through Joseph the finest land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. So Israel starts their story off as this clan is growing. They start off in a privileged position under the protection of Pharaoh through Joseph. But just as Joseph's life had shifted from privilege when he was young to hardship, so also the Hebrew people mutated over time from being accepted in the land to being despised, to being from being tolerated to being hated. And eventually they began using the Israelites as their slaves. And as Joseph's stories as Joseph's story ends with him in very good circumstances, so too Israel will progress to very good circumstances as they get out of slavery and eventually into the promised land. So Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the, Lord, so that the land was filled with them. Verse 7 echoes the creation account, doesn't it? God created Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. It echoes the promise to Abraham as God tells Abraham, I am going to make you to be fruitful and multiply. He didn't use those terms, but that's what he meant. So they continued to multiply and fill, fill the land even as they were being oppressed. We'll see next week how Pharaoh shows his fear of this growing Israelite nation. He shows his insecurity. He feels threatened by their growth. But all the while, we see God keeping his promises. And like I said, we're going to see that over and over again throughout the book of Exodus. In seeing our promise-keeping God in action throughout history, it should help us believe that he will keep his promises to us as well. And he does. The greatest promise that he has made to us is that all who trust Jesus for their salvation rather than trusting their own good deeds will have eternity with him. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 say this. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life life this promise of eternal life is this a promise for you if you believe in Jesus Christ if you believe that he died for your sins if you've received his gift of salvation then yes it is it is your promise to claim do you have eternal life? Have you come to the point of admitting to God that you are a sinner who lives against God's standard of holiness and thus deserves the full wrath of God against you? Have you come to that point of confessing your sin to him? And then having recognized God's holiness 
and your sinfulness? Have you received God's gift of salvation purchased by the death of Jesus? I did that when I was about five or six years old. Yes, that was a little while ago. But my salvation is not based on an event that happened years ago. My salvation is based on the knowledge of who Jesus is and that I'm trusting him today, right? Because anyone can say a prayer. I could give a prayer for you to repeat, but that wouldn't save necessarily, right? Because faith is a matter of the heart. We express our faith with what we say. We express our faith in prayer. But faith is a matter of the heart. And God promises that those whose hearts are turned to him will live forever, will have eternal life. So for those who have received Jesus as your Savior, are you living as though you have eternal life? God is faithful to you. Are you being faithful to him? We're going to see throughout the book of Exodus how God is always faithful to his people and only sometimes were they faithful back to him. On the one hand, it's kind of a discouraging story, but on the other hand, it's a blessed story because God keeps taking them back, doesn't he? And he's faithful to do that for us as well. Do our actions and attitudes reflect the change that Christ has made in us? If you're a believer, he's changed you. Does it show? God is faithful. We're going to see that in the book of Exodus. He's a promise keeping God. So our call today, our challenge today is to live knowing that he keeps his promises to us as well. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, for many, if not most of us, we, we have a good idea of what happens in the book of Exodus. We know that, that you are faithful to your people and they try to obey for a while and they fall away. And we look at them and go, how could you be so foolish? But Father, if we're honest with ourselves, we do the same thing. Father, help us to learn from the example of the Israelites that it is better to trust you even when the world around us is pulling and tugging us in a different direction it's better for us to trust in you help us to learn from the scripture and even through our experience that you are faithful that the promises that you make you keep and help us to live faithfully for you as well so Father, I ask that you would bless us throughout this week as we put our time and effort into learning your word, knowing your word, meditating on your word. I ask that you would put your blessing upon us as we have uh, discussions that are God-centered, whether it's with family members or coworkers, neighbors. Lord, I ask that you would keep your promise to bless us as we seek to live for you. I ask, Father, that as we take this dive into the book of Exodus, that uh, you would use all the twists and turns to illustrate your goodness, your character, your faithfulness, how you uh, are holy and, and demand holiness. You can't even be in the presence 
of unholiness. Thank you for uh, the way that we will uh, learn even in, in great detail how you make provisions so that uh, we can have holiness credited to us. Father, my heart is full looking forward in, into what you will do through this book. So Lord, I, I ask that you would Bless us as we make that journey together. I ask that you would guide and direct us throughout this week that we would seek to live for you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.